Hello, and thank you for joining us on Building Greatness the Warrior Way, a Westcliff University Athletics podcast. As always, I'm joined by our Dean of Athletics, Sean Harris. Yay, yay. And I'm Sherm Dog, David Shermet, the head baseball coach at Westcliff University. Well, to all our listeners out there, our incredible interview series continues. All we have are first round draft picks, and today is no different. We've got our uh, one of our newest coaches in the Westcliff family, Daniel Tustin, who is all things cross country and a few things track and field. Daniel, great to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Well, you know, you have a pretty interesting background as you and I have had the chance to get to know each other recently. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your history and uh, how it is that you've managed to join us here at Westcliff? Well, it's been a long journey. Uh, very excited to be at Westcliff. Um, it's been uh, my passion and my, my goal to become a head coach at the university level over the past four years. Started coaching, well, actually, my journey kind of started as an athlete, um, high school, and then in the collegiate ranks myself at Cal Lutheran uh, up in Thousand Oaks, California, Division Three school, um, really developed my passion for the sport. And uh, from there became actually a youth coach, coaching middle schoolers, seventh graders, eighth graders, from there coaching at the high school ranks, Moore Park High School. Um, I've coached, in addition to cross country, hurdles, sprints, relays, uh, high jump, long jump, triple jump. I've also coached at Moore Park College, community college up here um, in Moore Park, California, where I've coached cross country um, as well as track and field, but also been very heavily involved in recruiting. That's probably been my biggest impact up here. Um, and then just built experience year after year. Again, over the past four years, I've done um, my, my got my MBA from Cal Lutheran. And I'm currently working on a uh, master's of science in uh, exercise science. So um, again, coaching really is like my lifelong passion. Um, it doesn't feel like work to me. We're, you know, as coaches, we're, we're going 24 seven. If you're doing a good job <laughs> um, with recruiting, not, not, it goes way beyond just coaching. Right. So um, it, it, again, it doesn't feel like work to me. It's like, it's what I, I get up and I have the greatest job in the world. I, lo I love what I, I love what I do. So uh, very happy to be here at Westcliff and to have this opportunity to build something from the ground up um, and to be surrounded by coaches, by the people that I'm working with. Hmm, that's great. I, I've hmm. heard this saying before that if you love what you do, it means you, you don't work a day in your life. It's not yeah. like work, as you've said. Um, yeah. Let me ask you a question. When you were uh, in competition yourself as a student athlete and coming up, what events did you participate? What was your specialty? I was a distance athlete, so cross country. And then during the track season, I did the 800 and the 1500, so the mile and the half mile. Um, and then in cross country, in the collegiate ranks, we run 8,000 meters. That's about five miles. Wow. And uh, which one did you prefer? Where, where did you excel? Uh, I love both of them. I think overall, I like cross country a little bit more. I like the team dynamic that you get out of it. You know, you get five to seven guys working together towards a common goal. It's not track is a lot more individual focused, even though there is team scoring and championships and all of that. Um, but then I also I also love track, which is a little weird because I love the 8000, which is five miles. But then I also love the 800, which was half a mile. Hmm. So I, I thought it was a good mix. Um, yeah, well, I don't I felt I felt like I excelled relatively at the same level with both of them. 
Okay. This is fascinating to me because I equate it to um, like NASCAR or, and I'll, I'll make my point here in just a second, or a bicycle race, you know, in a velodrome. You've got yeah. a team, yeah, that all has to work together. And you've said you might get five or seven guys on the line from your team. How is it that you all feed off each other as a team in the middle of a race? Because, you know, you still have to run your race. You've got to be in shape. You've got to take your strides. You know, you, you've, but I guess in the middle of the race, are you all talking to each other? Are you staying in a pack? Are you pushing each other? It's kind of like that, you know, not just a bike race, but like the Tour de France, same thing. You know, you've got a team of four or five guys all trying to help one guy in particular. Do you, when you're running like that in a pack of your team against other teams, is there a hierarchy? Do you know who your number one is? This is the guy we're trying to get across the finish line first, or is it just a free for all and we're going to push each other? Uh, generally, yeah, there is a bit of a hierarchy. Uh, sometimes if you're like really deep, you might have like two or three guys up front, you know, mix that could, that could lead you at, you know, for any given race. Um, but, and you're not really talking maybe a little bit in the beginning. Um, but if you're talking towards the end, you're probably not running as hard as you can. Um, and some races go out slower than others. So you're able to do a little bit more of that and communicate with each other, but generally you're just looking for those jerseys ahead of you. Um, and you know, beforehand going in, you know, who, who do I need to beat to help the team in terms of this, these other teams that we're trying to compete against, um, because the scoring is all based off of place. Um, so low score wins kind of like, you know, golf. So if, if your number one runner gets first, that's a one. Um, and then it just goes down the line. So every single place counts at least through the top five. Okay. I got it. But yeah. you, you as a team know. Mm -hmm who your number one runner is. He's the fastest or in the best shape or takes the longest strides. And that's the guy you're trying to work to get across the line. Or is it, as I say, a free for all, Hey, if I can beat my teammates, I'm going to bust it and beat them. Oh yeah. If you can, you know, why not? We're all there to uh, push each other. Okay. And with a healthy team dynamic, you know, nobody takes that personally, but generally there is like a, a hierarchy. Um, but you might have a, a little bit of like jostling a position from race to race. It just depends on what kind of talent you have. Sometimes you have a guy that's like way out, of, way out ahead of everybody else, but sometimes you're a little bit closer, you know? Okay. So. Do you, do you call the guy way out ahead the rabbit? Uh, rabbit is usually like somebody who jumps in a race um, and they lead for maybe like the first half of it to pace it really well. And then they drop out. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. You know, when, when I see a race, um, long distance race, and you see all the runners bunched up, it seems like at the beginning, there's a lot of elbowing and posturing and trying to get into your slot when the race begins. Is that, is that the truth? Like you're trying to fight each other, whether it's your own teammates or the other, the other team, just to start the race fast, get into your rhythm and get into a place like fourth or fifth or sixth or wherever you're comfortable running. Is there a lot of that at the beginning of the race? Yeah, cross country can be um, a little hectic that way, uh, especially like the bigger the race is. One time when I was uh, competing myself at Cal Lutheran, we had this race at UC Riverside, and I think it was like three or 400 people on the starting line. And a lot of times in cross country, like the the start will converge, you know, to the actual course. Right, it's right. a wide starting line. And this one converged to like, again, it was like three or 400 guys. And then to like it converged within like a hundred meters converged to like a shoot that was maybe, I don't know, like 40 or 50 meters wide. So you had 
a lot of times you have a lot of people converging, especially at the start. So you're really crazy and you have a lot of, like you said, like some elbows and pushing and not to, not to, you know, be mean or anything, but just to protect your space and protect yourself. So there was this one race again, I had at, at UC Riverside and we got out and I actually fell like probably within the first like 30 meters. And I had all my teammates behind me, like hurtling over me to not step on me. Um, and so, yeah, it can get kind of like nasty in there, but you just keep going. And again, you do your, your, your best to just protect yourself, protect your space. And like you said, get a good position, um, out in front as best you can. And then you kind of settle into whatever that pace is, because if you continue at that fast effort that you start at, you're probably going to fade like within a mile or two. Right. So, so it, it's sounds like, tricky. it sounds like a bottleneck, right? It, it's wide oh, it at does. the bottom. And then all of a sudden it starts and everybody can, uh, can, I guess, um, comes together at the very yeah. beginning is there yeah. is there bad blood at that point you know if you if you get off to a rocky start with with somebody on another team it could last the whole race um yeah it could be especially if you think somebody's doing something like malicious to you or like intentionally cutting you off or really that, really being and, physical and that happens right um sometimes i've never had any experience where i had a lot of bad blood with somebody but i've had that have told me afterwards like they were ready to fight a guy like during the race you know wow. or that so and sometimes you do hear people like uh talking to each other or like you know cussing or yeah you hear people saying some things like in, okay. the, in the beginning of the race where it's really crazy yeah now you know when you talk long distance and you talk like a you're talking maybe five mile race is that a road race are you are you flat on asphalt or is that up and down through hills and dirt um so like true cross country is wouldn't be like on a sidewalk or on a road it would be like dirt or especially like thick grass um back east or in the northwest a lot of the courses are like really grassy muddy sometimes you're running through like snow and things like that the west coast so cal the weather's like so great and we just we don't have like we we do a lot more running like it still is on those type of that type of terrain but it's also like on the roads or sidewalk some courses are flat and they're like lightning fast. Some courses are hilly up and down. Um, it just depends on the course. That's the great thing. You have so much variety from, from meet to meet, you know, you never, you never really get the same race twice. Hmm. Interesting. Um, did you have the opportunity to run in, uh, races that happen every year? I, I, like, a you know, there might be something like the LA classic or whatever the case is. And you get to go back to that every year and run that same race over and over, especially cause you, you enjoy it. Um, yeah, I mean, pretty much. Yeah. In high school and college, we did the same races every year, especially like the, all the conference meets they'd be held at the same place. And usually the conditions would be, and you, you know, you see the same people every year. So it was a good way to kind of benchmark yourself year to year to see your right. progress. Did yeah. you have a favorite location, a favorite race in particular? Good question. Um, I think in college, like like the UC Riverside race, that one was pretty fast. Um, any course that's fast, like those, that's the one that people are going to like. Um, I liked, I honestly liked racing at more of the hillier courses. So we had in college, we had um, a, a conference meet, not the conference championship, but a conference meet at a course in La Mirada that was it was kind of challenging. Like it had a lot of steep inclines, um, grass. And so it was kind of like a grinder. And I kind of, I really enjoyed those courses in terms of being able to compete. I felt like 
I was pretty mentally like men, I was mentally really strong um, in a lot of areas. So I could kind of like use that to my advantage um, and just be smart and not go hard out in the beginning and, and just catch people and hunt people down throughout the whole race. I thought that was a lot of fun. So, mm. so you have, you have to run a smart race. I mean, you, you have to know the ins and outs and when to make your move and, and when to draft, I guess. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's kind of like, um, you know, it, you have to obviously be in good shape and, and be able to run, but you got to be smart about your race as well. For sure. Yeah. Okay. The, the, especially like the longer the race is. Um, so like if you go out, right, everything is like kind of based off of pace, right? If you're running a half mile race versus like a five mile race, the half mile race, you're going to be running a lot faster. Oh, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, and, but it's also a lot shorter. So if you go out too hard in like a half in like an 800 or, you know, a half mile race, the, the time that you're really going to be hurting um, is a lot shorter versus like in a five mile race. If you go out too hard, you're going to be hurting for like three miles, you know, cause you <laughs> went out too hard and you're just fading and fading and fading. And there's nothing you can really do at that point. So you have to be smart about your pace. And then in cross country, especially because like I said, there's so many variables in terms of like the hills, the turns, um, the different terrain that you're on, you have to be smart in terms of like knowing how to take a turn, you know, how, how to run downhill versus uphill, you know, to get your speed back versus being on a track, um, just running laps, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's in a lot more of a controlled environment. But you've done those races where you run laps, you're just on a track and you might have to do 22 laps around or something like that. You've done those races before as well, right? Yeah. The furthest I've ever raced on the track is, uh, 5k, which is 12 and a half. And then the longest race that there is, um, at least at our level is 10,000 meters, which is 25 laps. Okay. But you prefer to be on a course rather than the track. Uh, personally, yeah, I'd say so. And then when I'm on the track, I like to do the shorter stuff. Yeah. Well, when you're on a course, the scenery changes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally, it's a lot different. It's, it's a real mental challenge when you're on the track and you're going around 12 or 25 times. Does that get boring on the track or you just, you, you've got to get, be mentally tough in order to stay focused. Yeah. You just, yeah, you got to be mentally tough and you just got to train for it, prepare for it. And that's what the workouts are for. Um, you know, you do, you run a lot of laps on the track, you know, in your workouts, hopefully. So that way mentally, like you're prepared for that. Um, and you're not just like caught up in trying to count, to count down every lap, you know, um, you just kind of, you you don't really, you don't don't zone out, but you're not so focused on it. You're just, you know, you're doing your thing. Is there, is there such a thing as the runner's high? Um, I mean, I've heard that that term when, when you get into not necessarily a trance, but once you get past that initial, you know, however long it is for each person, maybe it's a mile, it could be five miles and, and you're huffing and puffing and you're exhausted. And all of a sudden you hit that high where you don't notice anything around you. You're not tired. You're not huffing and puffing. You're just right in the pocket and you feel like you could run all day. I think some races you feel better than others, but I don't know that I've ever had I mean, I've had races where I felt great, but it's never, it's not like, I mean, if you feel really good at the end of a race, you probably weren't pushing yourself very hard. Right. Um, and so I think the runner size more so like when you finish and you've ran a great race, you know, and you have, you definitely get endorphins from obviously exercise and especially running. Like I've had, I've gone out and done workouts or races, you know, where I ran really hard. And then afterwards I felt great. I had kind of like that, 
that high. Like I felt really up in terms of my mood and, and everything. Um, but you know, racing is, is hard. Like long distance is like, you know, anybody knows, right. You go out for like, however, you know, however far you're running three or four miles as hard as you can. Like, that's going to be very exhausting. So I don't know that it ever feels great or feels Mm -hmm. amazing while you're doing it. Um, again, sometimes you feel better than others. Sure. Sure. It's, it's more like that, that feeling that you get afterwards. Okay. You know, I I've seen on TV highlights or maybe lowlights at the end of races where runners are exhausted and maybe they're delirious and they don't even know where the finish line is. People have to help them across the line. Um, and it, it obviously it's a, a not just a physical challenge, a mental challenge, and hopefully that you know they don't have to be hydrated or go to the hospital or anything like that. But I you do see that from time to time, especially yeah. at the end of say a marathon, you know yeah. over twenty six miles. Have you run any marathons, whether it's just because you wanted to or you were in competition? Yeah, yeah, I've done one marathon back in twenty nineteen in October of twenty nineteen. Where yeah, was that? Was- that was in Ventura, California. Okay. That's up, up north where I am. Yeah. What what was the incentive to do that? Because you you said you've only done it once. So why is that something you did personally? I just you said, hey, I want to do it once just to say I did it and then I can move on. Yeah. So one of the one of the guys that I coach with up here um, at the high school that I work at, he is a marathon guy. And every year, a couple of years, he does one. So he kind of like got me into it. Um, and so I just started training for it. Um, and I had the goal of breaking two hours and 50 minutes. So that was the goal going into it. Um, it was a weird experience because the first, like, I'd say 85, 90% of that race, at least for me, and I've only done it once, but it felt the very manageable, like the effort felt very manageable because relative to like how, what your top speed is, you're not going very fast. Um, but then it all kind of hits you. It gets real, like at the end, which is different from a lot of other races. A lot of other races you get like maybe half, halfway or three quarters of the way through. And that's when it really starts hurting. Um, but this really didn't start hurting until like last maybe three or four miles. And then the last two miles were like the hardest two miles I've ever run in my life. Like it Mm. felt, felt so long. Um, but overall, I think it was a, it was a great experience. Um, I really enjoyed training for it. Just like putting all the miles in for it. Um, I felt like I was in really great shape. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would do it again, just because in, in the marathon, it's a little different in that you have to like, you have this nutrition piece. If you've ever watched marathon, like people are drinking water and they're, um, you know, taking in nutrition and mm-hmm. these different supplements and things like that. And so that's like a whole nother variable in terms of managing it. Um, you know, in terms of like being dehydrated or cramping up or, and so I had a little bit, I think I had, yeah, some stomach issues as well as some dehydration, like at the end. So it's tough to manage versus just like going out and just running as hard as you can. Sure. What was, do you remember what your time was? Yeah. So I, again, I was trying to break 250 and I ran 251.15 and really, again, just fell apart at the end. The last mile was like, I was on pace up until the last mile and the last mile, I just was really hurting. Yeah. Well, anything that that's, you know, anything under four hours is great. I know you got your personal goals and all that, but under three hours is, is incredible. Hey, um, let me, let me switch gears a little bit and talk about your vision 
for uh, your teams and competition for Westcliff University. Um, you're joining us at a time for our track and field and cross country programs that are kind of, I don't wanna say in transition, but you got a lot of work ahead of you. So what is your short-term goal and what is your long-term goal for your program? Um, well, our short-term goal this season is to field a complete team on the men's side and on the women's side for our conference championship. Okay, and so how, that at a minimum- how many, how many is that? At a minimum is, is five people. Um, okay. But ideally, we have more. So five people on each side. Ideally, though, we have a few more than that just because injuries come up, you know, grades. It's never, as you know, right, like you never make it through the season with everybody that you had at the beginning. So having five is like right on the edge. But that that would be the goal to have like a scoring placing team um, on each side for conference championships. Okay. And uh, so in the short term, it's to field five athletes uh, on both the men's and women's side. Do they all run, do the men and women run the same events? Uh, they don't. So it depends on what level you're at. Um, but that, at the NAIA level, we run uh, 8K again. So that's five miles for the men. And then the women run 5K, which is just a little bit more than three miles. Right. Okay. Um, interesting. So then, uh, you know, that's the short term in the short term. What is our long-term goal? Well, long-term, you know, it's always been my dream and my ambition to win a national championship. Somewhere. Sure. So I, and I think, I don't know for, I don't, for me as a coach, it's like, I don't know what else, like that's like the highest. So for me, like coaching is all about like a pursuit of excellence in terms of just like being the best that you can be and being the best program you can be, being the best athlete, best coach that you can be, best student that you can be. Right. And then, and taking care of all of those things, like we, pursue these external goals, like a conference championship or a national championship or whatever it is that takes care of itself just by putting in the work. Um, when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to coaching, if I'm an athlete, when it comes to training, doing my classwork, right. Just being all that, that we can be as a team, uh, pursuit of excellence. So, and, and in doing that, you know, the ultimate goal is to win a national championship. Um, that's going to take a lot of work. It's a long road ahead in terms of numbers on the team. Um, you know, I'd like to see 20 to 30 men and 20 to 30 women. Um, that creates a real sense of like an actual team. Um, and it also gives you a lot of depth because again, injuries happen and you never make it through at the end. Like I said, like you are at the beginning. So having as many people as you can is a real advantage, um, mm -hmm. especially in cross country, because, um, there, there's a lot to be said, you know, you can have one, one guy or, or one man or woman that's really fast, but if you don't have four more or ideally you know seven to ten more backing them up um you're not gonna go very far so sure. i think that's the long-term goal in terms of like the actual accomplishment achievements of the team um but before that like i said is is just about building like that culture about that pursuit of excellence um, being all that we can be in our sport and also in the classroom um, sure. and then you know giving hopefully you know our student athletes take those skills with them beyond Westcliff, um, into their professional, their personal lives. Sure. Sure. What does the season look like? And by that, I mean, um, I, I, a lot of our listeners may be unfamiliar with the cross country season. When is the first race and, and how long does the season go? The season depends on usually the first meet of the cross country season is like in late August or early September. And then you go all the way into November. Okay. So a couple of months there through the fall. Yeah. 
Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now we're we are in the California Pacific Conference, CalPAC. Uh, there are 15 schools in the CalPAC, and not all of them have all the sports, as we've discovered. As an example, 10 of the teams have baseball. Uh, so there are five teams in the CalPAC that um, don't have baseball, and that always affects our our scheduling. How many meets do you anticipate participating? I, I mean, are there probably big meets are there five of them are there 10 of them are there three of them what can we look forward to through the fall how many meets yeah um well i think the nai limits us to eight cross-country meets if i'm not mistaken um i think we're going to compete in six five or six um you really in cross-country at the college level you really don't compete a lot you don't compete every week it's really it's hard on the body to compete like especially for the men if you can imagine running like five miles as hard as you can every single week um, it, it's, it can be a little bit challenging, kind of wear you out towards the end of the season. So, sure. um, I mean, counting, if we were to go to nationals, you know, this year, then we'd be running, we'd be racing six times. Um, but besides that, it, a solid five, mm -hmm. um, we're going to be uh, in, so in Southern California. We're limited in Southern California this year. So we're going to be, um, I think our first meets at Cal state Fullerton, uh, Mark cover classic. We're going to be there. We're going to go to Riverside, um, Pomona Pitzer. So uh, a lot of different, you know, cross country, we really don't have a conference meet until our conference championship. So it's a little weird because we don't have like dual dual meets or anything like that, like you see in high school um, or you see in other sports where it's like 1v1. Um, mm -hmm. It's more so just like bigger invitationals that you go right. to. Right. So, okay. Um, yeah. As a head coach, um, what do you think is going to be your greatest strength? Um, I think that's a great question. Um, I think in general, my biggest strength is just like my passion for the sport, my passion for working with student athletes. Um, and just, like I said earlier, like a love for what I do, because to me, it's not really work. And so I'm always willing to go like above and beyond and I'm pretty relentless when it comes to coaching. So whatever the program needs, whatever our school needs, whatever, like our student athletes need, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm there for, and mm -hmm. so whatever it takes to help them find that success, I think it is my biggest strength okay know? good yeah. um you know I, I always hear the term track and field cross country track and field they're not are, are they interchangeable because they're two very different things but i always hear those two things mentioned together um i mean they're absolutely different sports i think where a little bit of the confusion comes across is because you have typically you have the same athletes doing cross country doing track Right. Um, that was going to be my next yeah. question. Do we yeah, have a lot of crossover athletes? Yeah, typically, typically you do just because it's like, it's hard to stay in shape for one or the other without having like that team around you to train all year long in, in a competitive environment. Um, and the training is very similar, like for the distance athletes is pretty similar between cross country and track, you know, from a, a general perspective. Um, for those distance athletes, like you're either, if you're doing 8k for cross country versus if you're doing five or 10k for track, um, even for the shorter distances, like it's, it has some similarities. So that's, I think that's where like some of the confusion or some of the, you know, they are, they are somewhat related. They are, they are, like I said, very different sports in terms of like the terrain and everything that you race on and the distances. Right. Do you, yeah. are you going to be helping out with the track and field team as well? Yeah, so I'm I'm there to support uh, Justin Johnson. He's our head coach on the track side. Um, I I'll be working with the distances, and then 
um, I guess filling in, we haven't really discussed what, you know, what our track season is going to look like. Um, as I said, I think at the beginning here, I have experience coaching sprints, hurdles, relays, mm -hmm. jumps. So I can kind of fill in wherever I'm needed. Um, mm -hmm. but we'll see what, what Justin wants to do in terms of bringing on other coaches. Um, okay. but yeah, I, you know, I love, I love the entire sport of track and field. Like I love every event. I think it's so cool that we have so much variety in that sport. Like every single event, like you, you could consider it a different sport. You're doing something totally different. Um, and they're so technical. So there's so much fun to coach. Um, there's a lot of work that, that goes into those events. Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, as a baseball coach, um, we talk a lot about mechanics, mechanics mm -hmm. of our swing for the hitters, um, mechanics for our pitchers, because if their timing is off or their mechanics are off, chances are they're not going to be very successful. Is that a big concern where running is in the field of running the mechanics? And, um, you know, I, I hearken back to the movie uh, um, Chariots of Fire and uh, a few other running movies where they talk about hips being in the right place, stride being correct. Um, is, that, is that a big deal in, in track and field and running, uh, the mechanical side of things? Um, yeah, so that's a great question because, so let's just take, let's just look at long distance running first, so cross country or any like long distance track event. You see runners like at the highest professional level that don't have perfect mechanics, um, but that are, that are still dominating. So mechanics aren't really the limiting factor in long distance running, uh, but that doesn't mean that there's not a correct way to run and an incorrect way to run. Um, there definitely is. And so that, that can be a big advantage in terms of like actually fulfilling your potential as a long distance runner, like you should be working on your mechanics. And like you said, a lot of those things in terms of like position of your hips or your foot strike or um, the movement of your arms, your posture, all that is very important to work on. Um, and then outside of long distance, like in every other event of track and field, like your mechanics are more important. Like they're more of a limiting factor um, because you're every other event in track is about like power and, you know, maximum force output and speed and all of these things. And so to do that, to be as fast as you can, or to throw as far as you can, or to jump as far as you can, or as high as you can, like you have to be mechanically sound in order to get in the right position. Like it's extremely technical. Some mm. of the events. Yeah. See, that's a, that's the thing. I, I don't know that people realize you just see people running. Okay. Run fast. It's, yes. There's more yes. to it than just listening for the gun and running to the end. You know, yes. it just, yes. we don't, we don't necessarily see that. Um, but I remember uh, listening to some of the analysts break down Usain Bolt and the way he runs. Uh, as an example, he's so tall, he's 6'6". Um, now, this is a sprint. This is track. It's not as much cross country. Uh, but he only takes 41 strides to everybody else's 44 strides. I wouldn't have even thought of that. I mean, there are so many little technical things about running that people don't realize. They just think, oh, it's running. Just be faster than the guy next to you. But it's not all about that. There's so much more that goes into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, and like stride, stride length and stride frequency is, it's a little different for every single person. But yeah, if you can take fewer strides than somebody else at, at still at a fast frequency or at a fast like pace, like it's definitely going to be a big advantage. And part of that's, yeah, because, like I think because you said he's so tall, 
his legs are so long, he eats up so much of the track. Um, you know, and, and it's also Usain Bolt. Um, you know, it's that's one of the best athletes in the world, you know, and in probably in the history of track. Oh, yeah. In <laughs> so terms like, of running. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like he does watch. He does things that like, I mean, he actually isn't the best starter. No, that's another like, thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so like really, honestly, the 200 is more of his event versus the 100. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But like his his top end speed and his endurance is so great. Like even though even though his start isn't as good as it could be, it's still better than 99 percent of the other track athletes yeah, of course. you know so, and and then like you said like his top speed and his endurance like he just he closes better than anybody so it's like so hard to sure. compete against that sure do yeah. you do you have a mentor or did you have a an idol or somebody that helped you along the way or or just somebody you try to um model yourself um yeah i mean i've i've had a ton of mentors mm. over the year i think like and probably any successful coach or any successful person in any field, like you're going to, you got to have people that you look up to people that are doing what you want to do or who have done what you want to do um, sure, to help sure. you get there. And also just to give you opportunities and to help you learn along the way, learn and grow and, you know, just give you a chance to make mistakes. Um, yeah. And continue to grow as a person or as, as a professional. Sure. That, I, that's kind of normal. I, I think every coach is yeah. taking a little bit, along the way of what they've learned from other coaches and teammates and all of that. And then they put it into their own style. Do you have a certain style? Um, yeah, like, like I said, so my, my coaching philosophy is just built around uh, pursuing excellence and being all, all that you can be. So in that, you know, I try to be very honest with athletes. I'm supportive. I'm not, I'm never trying to be negative or anything like that, but I, I do like to keep it real. Um, but I feel like you can do that and still be positive and still be supportive. Um, you don't have to be negative or be screaming or yelling all the time. Um, but you do have to keep it real and you have to show some emotion sometimes. Um, and you know, hold athletes accountable for sure. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's like, that's, that's, that's the fun and tricky part about coaching. Um, you have to be willing is, is to know when to be supportive and when to be honest, um, and when to hold athletes accountable, you know? Are you very demonstrative on the sidelines? Are you yelling and pointing and, and do you run along the track with your athletes? Um, so it's like, it's actually technically like against the rules to pace an athlete like that. Right, right. Uh, but, I, but well, okay. I, I meant more for inspiration than pace, yeah, but. no, I, yeah. I mean, I, I get very into it. <laughs> like I'm screaming and yelling and yeah. Like I try to be, I try to be louder than the other coaches for sure. Um, because I know that that would help me when I, when I'm racing mm -hmm. more so just than like, you know, yelling out, diff you might be yelling out technical things for the runner or like strategic things, but also just like running is such like long distance running. Like when you're running as hard as you can for a set distance, like you just, you need that motivation more than mm -hmm. anything. Like you need sure. somebody there to like, just hype you up and keep you like engaged and locked in. Um, mm -hmm pushing yourself you know so i yeah i i do i do get very like demonstrative not in a negative way i think but just like you know emotional and, because yeah, it should just, be emotional an inspirational way to your yeah toward yeah your exactly athletes. well exactly. i i for one i'm certainly looking forward to uh seeing you on the sidelines and and motivating your team and i can't wait to get out to our first meet and cheer on our athletes hey uh you know ladies and gentlemen that is 
Daniel Tustin. He is our head uh, coach for our uh, distance runners. Also, he'll be out there on track and field helping Justin Johnson. And uh, Daniel, thanks for coming on today. Continue to be all that you can be. And uh, hopefully we can have you back another time. Would that be all right? For sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm back. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. You have a great day and uh, we'll get you back here another time. Okay. Okay, great. Talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Have a good one. Well, hey, Sean, here we are once again, continuing on with our podcast. We had one of our first round draft picks on earlier today, and that was our cross country and track and field coach, uh, the uh, wonderful Daniel Tustin, new to Westcliff, but I am very excited. He's going to do some great things for us. Hey, we just keep uh, getting better, Sherm. We keep getting better. Every day. And uh, along with Justin Johnson, the two of them are going to be formidable, I think. I'm, I'm really excited to come watch their teams compete. Absolutely. I got a, a, a little saying that I like to say every time we bring a first round draft pick in or we increase our Westcliff family through great student athletes, I like to say, here we grow again. So here we grow here, again. Here we grow again. And you know, you got to create your own sunshine. Absolutely. Yeah, I love all your colloquialisms. I don't know if I pronounce that correctly, but you got some great sayings, so I love all of them. Um, my favorite one, I think, is, you know, you pray for rain, but you got to deal with the mud. I've heard you say that a few times. Got to deal with the mud. Hey, it's mm. it's going to look kind of crazy out here for 2021, uh, 2022 season for everybody but Westcliff. Uh, we're looking to dominate. and um, That's because we stay ready, so we don't have to get ready. Absolutely, baby. That's another one. Yay, yay. Yay, yay. I got a couple did you knows today, and I think there's uh, some. This first one in particular is really interesting. I love this. I found this, and I thought there's a, there's a great deal of discussion that could happen around this, but it's the second one that I want to talk to you about. The first one, though, the only head coach in University of Kansas basketball history with a losing career record is Dr. James Naismith the inventor of basketball. Unbelievable. Hey, he did not have did not have a winning record as a coach. Hey, I, I, you know, listen, Sherm, I know why. Because he invented the game. He probably was a perfectionist. You know, you, you know how sometimes you can you, you build something and you want it to go right. And he probably was more concerned, you know, with, with everything else but his, him doing his job. You know, mm. and, and I'm making up excuses for him because, you know, I didn't know the man. I know. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, I, yeah. I knew. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I should defer to you because I heard you guys were pen pals anyway. I know he was in your <laughs> homeroom class, you know, saying. Uh, so I, I know I'm you probably that old. I know you probably know him more than me. But but I would think that uh, he has so much uh, pressure uh, of inventing a game and, and, and maybe trying to, to be the best at something you invented. Uh, maybe he just overcompensated and you know and have analytical paralysis to a point where he couldn't coach, or well, sure, maybe he flat out couldn't coach. <laughs> that, maybe you're right, but see, remember he invented it as a peach basket and it didn't have a hole in the bottom, right? So they had to take the ball out every time, and after each basket, the way it started off, they would jump center, they would jump again after every basket. That's how the early days of basketball got started. And he wrote everything down. He hand wrote everything on a piece of paper, which I believe his great grandson has now or something, or was in the Basketball Hall of Fame and, and uh, the original rules to basketball, which obviously have 
have changed over the years, and we are where we are at this point. But it's interesting that he was not a good coach. See, I mean, only someone who graced the sidelines or was in homeroom knows these intricate <laughs> details. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I'm sure his grandson was his ball boy at some point. And and I know you you attended some of the games, so I'm, I'm definitely going to defer to you. I'm not that old. I'm telling you. I'm not, I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. We're going to get to it. But you know what? The more you do that, the more you pump me up in my age, it'll just be that much more embarrassing for you when an old guy beats you on the basketball hey, court. Hey, listen. So. Let me just state this for the record. I have never, ever said you were old. You, <laughs> you just said yeah, I, I went I, to school with Dr. James Nates. Listen. I found that in an old microfish that, that was located in a library on a one school room uh, 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 place uh, back in, in, in Westcliff somewhere in Irvine. That's I'm just saying a one room schoolhouse, um, you know, projectiles all over the place, microfish and, you know, and everything else. I think, you know, to find uh, your bio, we had to look it up in the card catalog. In, in the reference sections, I'm just With saying. The Dewey, de- yeah. the Dewey Decimal oh. System, is that, is that what you you're know, talking about? And maybe I can pull out my protractor and, and figure okay. out the exact angles, right? This thing is located. Well, don't forget the abacus because, yeah. you know, how far back do you want to hey, go? Hey, you know, I was thinking about writing a report on WordPerfect right now, and, and maybe <laughs> it can get to you in, in my MS-DOS system. On DOS, I knew you were going to say that with dot .matrix. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hey, if we're going back that far, here, here's another interesting did you know, and this is going to spur a lot of questions. I'm, I'm going to ask you about this because we keep going back in time. The highest paid athlete of all time, I think this is really interesting, was second century Roman chariot racer, Gaius <laughs> Apuleius Diocles. Now, if you adjust for inflation, his total earnings would equal about $15 billion dollars today wow so yeah so you know the first million dollar athlete now remember it when he appeared on the cover of sports illustrated back in the 70s was arnold palmer first person to earn a million dollars now that wasn't necessarily through his endorsements but he was the first guy the first athlete to start really endorsing products but my question to you is we've got some pretty big contracts patrick mahomes has a 500 million dollar or so contract a little bit of it is uh, incentive laden mike trout 430 million and you know when i, I i'm not going to equate it to over the years i could just tell you when i played baseball professionally the average major league salary was four hundred and forty one thousand dollars. so if you look at that compared to where we are today and where we're headed do you think it's possible that there's an athlete out there who may earn a billion dollars, maybe not in our lifetime, but is it, I mean, they, you know, Hideki Matsuyama just won the Masters tournament last month, and they have said that that win, he's Japanese, will um, probably be worth a billion dollars in revenue. Not necessarily all of it going to him, but everything that goes along with winning the Masters Tournament. So um, do you think that we're going to get to a point where there's going to be an athlete who either earns that much or maybe has to have a certain percentage of the team in order to cover his or her salary? Is that a possibility? Oh, it's going to happen, Sherm. It's it's no doubt in my mind. I mean... Do you think somebody's going to earn a billion dollars for their their athletic ability? Absolutely. Uh, Once we... 
once the game, and I think it's going to happen in baseball before it happens anywhere. But I think at some point um, we're, we're going to look at betting with all these online uh, betting outsources and with revenue and different things of that nature. Um, you know, we can legalize marijuana. They're going to legalize gaming, you know, on the sports and in sports. And I think that's going to tie into the uh, TV revenue deals in uh, CBAs. And I can see guys coming away with lifetime contracts. You know, in, in some you know form or fashion. So I really believe that it's going to happen. And you think it's going to be baseball? I think it's going to be baseball. That baseball money is pretty long. Um, the game has been taking too long. You know, um, you know, as far as TV, TV time, and and everything else, they've been looking at different ways to try to spice it up. That's um, true. They are you know, they are changing the rules. You know, it is America's pastime. They don't want to lose that. A label. No, but you know it, it's it's rivaling football's rivaling it. It's it, taking it, it over, and that's what I'm saying. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like you know, people still believe that Pete Rose should be in, right? Um, yeah. You yeah. know, so I think they're gonna um, look at gaming to have to keep people interested, right? I mean, what what else would keep people interested in in the in it? Now, I'm I'm not talking about your diehards who love this game and like yourself and, and you know and, and grew up with it. We're talking about the casual fan, right? That that um, you know that swing vote. I like to say the the casual person that's going through the channel, and they they need them to stop now. You know they need them to stop in baseball. Um, people just not going through the turnstiles the same way they used to uh, anymore in this digital world. So um, I mean, you got ESPN catering to bad beats, right? That 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 segment. Oh, ESPN is all dedicated to to people who bet and understand, yes. you know, the over and under, right? Yeah, we're ta- yeah. we're talking about that more and more and more. So it's it's no doubt about it. You know that market's always been there, but if they go ahead and and legalize the gaming within the games, it's going to increase the revenue, and the athletes going to take a a share of that if they already getting um, a half of a billy right now. Without it, mm-hmm. it, it'd easily go to a, bill, a billion dollars. Yeah, but is that that's going to corrupt the game? It could corrupt the athlete. Oh, okay, the game it, the game wasn't corrupt when we was hitting all these homers outside the outside the park illegally. I mean, we we seen you know what happened to the game then. I mean, you know, it's an asterisk by some guys' names, but I, I don't even put the asterisk out there because at that point it seems like majority of everyone. What was what was participating in, in in that bad behavior, or what we deemed to be bad behavior? But I don't think it was a time where, uh, you know, TV w- was was at its highest, right? When McGuire and Sosa and those boys was launching those bombs out, out of the out of the stadiums with Barry Bonds. I, I mean, the casual fan started to tune in, and don't think that the MLB don't miss that revenue. They they miss that revenue. Now, you're, you're a purist, you're a traditionalist, and, and, and you sacrifice your, your, your time, your energy, and your whole life. You dedicate it to the sport. So this may be hard for you to swallow, but I'm talking about the casual fan who, who only pick up a glove every now and then. You know, um, they need that revenue. They need, the, they need those dollars. And, and I think at some point it's going to be a commissioner uh, of baseball that's going to pull the trigger. And and it's gonna be whatever it's gonna be. 
Because some people may think right now that the game is corrupt. Now, well, that's not my that's not my sentiments for me, but I'm just putting that out there as the devil as advocate today. Yeah, I understand. I understand. You know, obviously because baseball plays 162 games. That's kind of a long season. Basketball plays 82, so does hockey. Football, well, 17 games now. So, you got to make as much as you can because your opportunity window might might shrink a little bit. Um, obviously, the last year, revenue-wise in sports, has been terrible. Everybody's lost a lot of money. The gate has been closed. Um, and, and so most of the money comes in now through television. And, you know, I, I remember um, writing uh, an article for uh, the Orange County Register uh, years ago about when every time I buy a Pepsi, am I paying Brett Favre's salary? Because, you know, obviously the money that you spend on whatever products are going to be then used to make a commercial that they're going to have to buy time during the Super Bowl. And then there's something called revenue sharing, which is going to go to the to each team and then the team splits it up and then hands it out to the organization. So um, it, it just the money, the way the money's going, it's unbelievable. We, it took us a long time to get to a 400 or 500 million dollar contract. How much longer do you think it's going to be until we get to a billion-dollar contract? Not long at all. Uh, it's, it's probably going to be as fast as it takes you to take out your phone and and open it up with your face and push an app. That's how fast it's going to be. And I, I can remember where we, we, you know, sports teams, professional sports teams, uh, try to go away from setting anything up in Vegas or Atlanta City, right? That's right. not the case no more. <laughs> They, True. You know, so that's not the case. And now with new legislation, right, allowing uh, high school athletes, you know, to to get paid, you know, mm-hmm. basically. And, and then now we're talking about uh, collegiate athletes getting paid for their likeness, you know, yes. and different things of this nature. It's trending there, Sherm. I mean, this is just what it is. So I'm saying just turn on the light now. Just go ahead and turn on the light so we can get through the bugs. I think the bugs going to take anywhere between three and five years because – where there's opportunity, I think Jeff Bezos said this, your margin is my opportunity. So it's going to be a margin in there, and people are going to be exploiting that. We know that. And then at the end of the day, my 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 stance on it, I know you didn't ask me, but I'm just going to tell you, pay the man. Pay the players. Mm-hmm. Pay him. I mean, they've been the end user of this process when they got the highest uh, risk analysis. And at the end of the day, um, they got the expiration date. Uh, the organizations don't. They just recruit and draft another person that's coming through. So, um, you know, and, and, and I'm all for it. Uh, it's no such thing to me as amateurism anymore. Sherm, that's been out the door. Uh, the NCAA uh, has exploited that, uh, you know, um, that word for a long time. And and now um, it, it's been, for me, it's, it's been predatory in, in some cases when we're dealing with families and and like you said, uh, you know, how uh, people go about their business to exploit student athletes and professional athletes. So at this point, uh, it should be a revenue sharing agreement. Uh, so it can be as, as close to a win-win as possible. Hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, the only you know amateurism is recess, Sherm. That's it. When you used to go outside in elementary school and just run and play, that's your amateurism. All of that stops, man, when you get to middle school, with AAU and high school, especially when you're in the top 1% of, of, of student athletes and grassroots or 1% in, 
in uh, you know, collegiate athletics. You're a pro. Mm. You're a pro. Well, okay. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I had a conversation recently about athletes and, and their sensitivity. Um, you know, I, I feel like I twisted an ankle or I've got a strain and then you're out for the next two weeks. Uh, it, it kind of varies from sport to sport, but is that because uh, athletes are sensitive and, and they make a lot of money and they've got teams have a lot invested in them? Because, you know, in football, hey, you break a finger, tape it up and get back out there. I think the culture is different, but I think we, we're coming away from that as well. I mean, CTE has opened up a can of worms, right? That's probably been there forever. I know we said we don't know anyone living with CTE, but we wouldn't know that unless they just tell you that they they flat out crazy. But don't think that we haven't seen some tirades from guys in football, you know, because of the high uh, concussion rates, you know, with the head-on collisions and different things. Uh, and I know the technology is there, and I know they're trying to get better and teaching different techniques, but it is what it is. Uh, is you know, we still got disparities there as far as the gap of, of training and development. But at the end of the day, um, the athletes are taking the biggest risk, period. They're taking the biggest risk. And yeah, but the athletes know that going in. Absolutely. Well, they know that now. Not 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 everyone in every sport uh, demands the same kind of uh, output, you know. So, I mean, you know, some of the smarter athletes, you know, do a great job of investing into their body, right, so they can have longevity. But that's not for, for, for everybody. You know, everybody don't have that that type of knowledge or that technology or those contracts. You know, it, it, I mean, that's why guys who get paid millions of dollars as end users, that means their owners of, of those teams are getting paid billions of dollars through these TV deals. They taking no risk. And, and, and I get it. You can have that view like, hey, you know what you're signing up for. But, Sherm, sometimes you don't know what you're signing up for. Sometimes, you know, you get bamboozled. Sometimes you get hoodwinked. These things happen. Sometimes you get into a bad contract because you don't have the right people around you and the right understanding because of of your level of understanding or exposure. So, um, you know, for me, you know, I, I can't just say every athlete uh, knows what they're getting into. In, in, in theory, they do, but they artists at their craft. So they, they would do this for free, right? They would, you know. LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant – um, uh, Babe Ruth, uh, Jackie uh, Robinson, these guys never got paid their net worth of what they brought in, this, in the stadiums. They, they, they did it for the love. The athletes will always be the end users. And the end users don't get paid their net worth. And that's period. So uh, the owners will never be at a loss. So I, I don't feel sorry for the, for the, for the, How uh, do we, the owners. How do we... How do we know what the net worth is? Oh, we know it. Okay. <laughs> what you mean, you know, is what somebody's willing to pay. Okay, but here's a really good example. Um, when Magic Johnson was at his prime, he signed a 25-year contract for $25 million. And at the time, everybody, was, I remember it really well. Um, everybody was just floored by it. Wow, longevity and a million dollars back then obviously was was kind of the threshold. It was that was a new figure that we hadn't seen in sports very much. And then some of the other players came along after him. And hey, this guy has a uh, an eight year contract, uh, making more per year than Magic was. And and you know you get these athletes who sign a contract 
and it looks great at the time. Then they get surpassed by the guys coming up after them, and they're like, well, no, 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 now I need to renegotiate. But wait a minute, you signed this contract. Why don't you honor that? Just because somebody's coming up after you, making more than you, you know, at one time, you were the highest paid athlete. Now you're not. So does it become an ego thing? Is that is that what it is? Well, or, or? Here, here's the deal, sure. You know, as far as this, you sign the contract and have an honor and all those things. Um, I, I don't subscribe to all of that, even though I understand it, right? And and, and I think the contents of, of, of sports, the context of sports is a little bit different because everything's negotiable at the end of the day. Everything's negotiable. I mean, countries get out of treaty agreements. In football, they can cut you at any time, no matter if they got you on contract or not. Okay? So it it goes both ways, Sherm. Right? It goes both ways. But the problem is we're talking about extraordinary people, extraordinary people. We're talking about the top 1%. We're not created equal. Our former president um, has shown us that that billionaires don't live the same life as as you and I. Mm-hmm. The rules don't apply, okay? So now you asking me to hold someone to a standard that America doesn't even subscribe to itself? AK is takers and is givers. And, and this is the business that we're in. And it's three things that's always relevant in business, right? Cash is king. You either buy or bury the competition, period. That's it. And that's the reason why Jeff Bezos said, hey, your margin, right, is my opportunity, especially when he's sitting on liquid cash. And he got more than anybody else. You think he has these same issues? You think he's standing in line for something, Sherm? Do you think uh, people not making exceptions for him? You think he has to go in a sign-up seat and stand in a line uh, longer than uh, a mile or two just to vote? You think he doing that? Absolutely not. So why am I sit here and be hypocritical? It's always about supply and demand. And when you're hot, you're hot. And if your market share goes up, you're going to renegotiate. Because at the end of the day, sports is supposed to be a meritocracy. If everybody could do this, then everybody would get paid this way. But not many can't. It's scarce, right? So it's always about supply and demand. And it's about leverage. So what we try to do... And athletes try to do is try to be in first position so you can control the leverage. And that's just business. So in business, you renegotiate or you go to war, right? And that's really it. And this has been happening way before me and you. We're talking about BC, right? This has been happening all the time, even in the time when Alex, you know, the great was conquering lands, okay? I'm sure they had an agreement not to come on over our border. They went over there and took what they wanted, right? Okay, so this this has been happening all the time. So I definitely can't sit on no soapbox and act like, you know, this ain't how uh, the world works. This is how it works, Sherm. Those who have leverage, flex. Those who don't, don't eat. That's it. So... So who has more leverage, the player who you're calling the end user? They are the end the, user. They're not the end the, user in the product. Or the, the sports yeah, or entertainment the, or the own or the owner. It depends. Because, it depends. It all depends on who is bringing more butts in the seats at the end of the day. 
And it's up for them to negotiate that. And it up, it's up to the owner to decide, right, who is more valuable than is somebody else. That That's a decision. And it's up to the players, right, to control their leverage when they have a chance to to do it. And and now the easy word that we're seeing is contract extensions because the owner's happy with paying that amount. So we, we don't cry about when we see extensions because, you know, both sides agree that, yeah, you're right. You should get a little bit more. So we call that a contract extension. You're not crying about contract extensions, but that's a renegotiation. The deal that's on top of the deal that you already signed. The only thing you you upset about is that little one half of a percent when the owner and the product, which are, or the end user, uh, are not happy with the product that's been placed out for the consumer to buy, and they got a disagreement of what the value is. That that doesn't happen all the time, Sherm. That's very little. Okay, LeBron James start betting on himself. Uh, Revis. You know, was one of the first ones that tried to uh, exploit that as a cornerback in the league in the NFL, where he would just take a one-year deal in a volatile sport, right? And then you have to pay him that market value. So it's always been a risk reward, you know. In it, and you see guys do it all the time. Jimmy Butler did that, you know, and went to the bank. You know, when an athlete, you know, decides, hey, I'm not going to sign that extension because I know you lowballing me. I'm a I'm a risk injury. I'm going to increase my net worth and my value to you to where you have to pay me, right? And then we saw the flip side of the way that um, my guy in Dallas, right, you know, did his quarterback, you know, Dak Prescott. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was crazy because of the position and how valuable the position was. Nobody has ever tried to lowball a quarterback like that. And it made people look and say, hey, are you doing this because he's a black quarterback? Because the numbers has showed that he was one of the most productive and durable guys. And then he takes a serious injury. Thank God. Thank God for him having a franchise tag where they had to pay him anyway. Right. Or he wouldn't have got paid. So I don't feel sorry for him. It's, it's business. Everything's up for negotiation. Okay, now, that, that's a great point. So here's my question. Uh, let's say an athlete has a five-year contract, and in year two or three, he or she decides to hold out because somebody's gone by them, whatever the case is. But let's say in year four, they're having a down year. Yeah, it happens in baseball a lot. It's hard to maintain a 300 average. Maybe you're you're having a really bad year and you see it frequently. How come the owner doesn't go to the player and say, "All right, we need to negotiate renegotiate your contract downward because you're not producing. Here's, because you're not doing what we wanted you to do." It's a meritocracy they, as you they, said. They do that, Sherm, but when you put in butts in seats, it don't matter. Like we can talk about, you know, Pujols, right? Over in the Angels. His production hasn't been what it normally was when he came out, right? You know, his production ain't been the same. And we know injuries or whatnot because he's a great guy, right? But at the end of the day, Anaheim not getting out of him what they put in, but he still fills up the seats, him and Trout. They still making other money off of these guys. You know, um, apparel, um, you know, appearances, and, and different things of that nature. And then the fact that he's on the roster 
makes it makes people feel like they have a chance of winning. So it increases season ticket, uh, you know, sales for people who believe that they can go to some great games. So it's a little bit more uh, comprehensive than just what the production is on on the actual um, you know on the field of play. And, and I will tell you this now in this social media deal, right? We got guys, especially in basketball, who may be an influencer on the grassroots level, come out of high school with one to three million or four million followers on Instagram who probably get a one-year deal because of all the other things besides of what they do in the sport. Because there's so many ways to make money off the athlete. So all of these things are, are, are taken into consideration now, not just the production of what fans want to see. This, you know, if, if I remember when Jeremy Lin went on Linsanity, went crazy. He can't. Oh, yeah, he, I remember that. He can, can't find a job right now. Okay, he can't find a consistent job right now. But but it was enough to take him off his couch in New York in the biggest market, and they ran with it. Right, he didn't have the best game. He wasn't the best point guard. He had a couple moments, and it's been dudes better than him who put in more consistent work that never got paid and got that opportunity or exposure. But because you know he was in an Asian market, a bigger market, the NBA is really trying to push into China and different things. It made sense for everything, um, you know, other than his performance on the court. So it's a lot that goes into this when we're talking about showcasing athletes and how uh, they get exploited and how they're used. Um, and, and then we're not even talking about the show ponies. Hey, you know, I'm the owner and I ensure you my you're my um, you, you're one of my star athletes and, and I'm having a dinner party with some of my billionaire friends and I want to show you off because they never met you. Hey, come on over, bud. You know, I'm calling you up. Owner want to see you come to the house little cocktails and hors d'oeuvres, right? And you're a show pony. So it's a lot of stuff that happens in this game, Sherm, that we don't see that has nothing to do with the field of player competition. So I, I, I think you, you, you leverage any situation you can because athletes, we do know this, they have an expiration date. We know that. Owners don't have an expiration date. Teams don't have an expiration date. Okay, but but athletes do. So I would tell every athlete, get paid, get paid, get everything you possibly can get before your expiration uh, date um, expires. And and you don't even know when that is. Right. You know, you don't have a clue when that is. I was looking at Victor Oladipo, you know, now getting a a year in his surgery. You know, he just can't get that quad right. He may never play again. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping he got paid. But that's why we got agents. To do all the dirty work, and then this is what happens, right? When 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 they can't control the athlete, then they start selling their name and reputation. Let's talk about that, Sherm. If you want to get downright and dirty, they try to sully their name so the athlete doesn't have any value, so they can stay where they need to stay. Because I still got one eyebrow up on that whole situation with the Houston Texans with Deshaun Watson. You telling me he been doing this for how long and, and nobody knew about it? The way that we um, uh, monitor 
uh, athletes of that kind of high caliber, your quarterback, you telling me you ain't have no internal investigators knowing what your quarterback was doing, if, if all of this is true or not true. But since he decided that he wasn't going to pay for the owner, play for the owner for personal reasons, and he personalized it, now all of a sudden this dude looking like a serial rapist and nobody in Houston knew about this? Come on, man. It's some things to look into that. And I'm not saying that he's guilty or innocent and 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 and, and for the victims or, or whatever, you know, God bless you. I'm just I'm just pointing out that it can go a, a lot of different ways in this business, because at the end of the day, three things is still important because it is a business. The cash is king. They either going to bury or buy the competition. That's it. That's that happens every single time. Tell me a time it doesn't happen. Aaron Rodgers, look at his situation. Not happy, right? But hey, who's killing his name right now? Who's beating him up? Nobody. In norm, we normally beat up, unfortunately, the minorities because we feel like, oh, you should be blessed. It's a privilege. No, they buying for a service, just like anybody else. So it's some disparities there, Sherman. It's, it's some things that we really take the microscope out and really deep dive into this thing. You know, it comes, it's going to be really, really complex. And it's going to be some deep waters that nobody want to talk about. So, you know, but hey, on this show and this podcast, we, we're, we're here to educate and bring awareness and spotlight some of these things and, and, you you have to agree with me. It's it's some things that just don't make sense out there. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Yeah, I understand. I understand your point of view entirely. Um, I, I don't know. Sports is just a very different animal. I mean, as you say, it's a meritocracy. The better you do, you should be rewarded. It should be. It should be. But here's the deal, though, right? Although it's a meritocracy in premise, we know that nepotism is the culture of sports. Period. Normally, players get first treatment. If I play for you, Sherman, you're my coach, and I decide I want to go in coaching, you're going to grab me first before you grab the next dude that you don't know. Right. That's how sports is. You take care of your teammate. Mm -hmm. In this sport, your son can play for you. Your brother can coach with you. This is the culture of sports. This ain't the same. This ain't the business in corporate America where, hey, you know, we don't want to work with family. No, not not in sports. You, it's okay. Eddie Sutton did it, right? Jimmy Boheim, uh, uh, Jim yeah. Boheim, right? Got his son, right? Playing mm-hmm. for him. Like it, it, it. This is what it is, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, the guy from Oklahoma, he retired, but his son took over for him, right? Because he's yep. on. This is the culture of sports, right? But it's called nepotism, right? And, and but but it's not uh, looked the same way in sports because it's a different rite of passage and it's just a different culture. But it's it's hey, I'm gonna have my kids working with me because that's what that's how this game is. That's what it's all about. That that's that's it. That's that's this is how it is. It's just it's not viewed the same way as a corporate structure in any other case. Sports is not viewed that way. Athletics is not viewed that way. So we can't try to have, you know, one have it both ways. Sure. 
It, it can't be both ways. So, I mean, the way we're compensating athletes these days is that it, it, if they get a contract, and that's the ultimate goal for an athlete, you want a contract. So you get your contract and, you know, you can equate it to business. It doesn't matter how well you do. I mean, if it's incentive-laden contract, that's one thing. But if you have a base salary, you get that no matter what kind of output you have. And I know you call it, I know you were, you're, you're going to mention about sweat equity and some other things that got you to that point. Uh, and you bring up Pujols as an example. You know, his first 10 years with the Cardinals were vastly different than his second 10 years with the Angels. But as an example, if you're a salesman or a saleswoman for, say, IBM, and you don't sell very much, you're not going to make very much. It ain't so, the same It ain't the same principles because that's not what sports is about. Because sports is about putting butts in seats here, and selling here, merchandise and, here's the and deal, television rights. That person for IBM don't have their own influencers, don't have their own followers. So that's all they do. Athletes do so much more. Athletes can show up to an appearance for an owner at the stadium and make a couple hundred thousand dollars. That 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 person from IBM can't do that. Nobody cares if if she shows up to the local Walmart and hand out things in the community and, and, and whatnot. It ain't the same. It's not equivalent. It's not the same. It's not an equal. It's not apples and that's apples and oranges. Uh, Sherm, that's not apples and apples. Now, I, I got a question. Like, in, in your playing career, and I'm not personalizing this, so don't take it that way, right? But you kind of missed a wave in your contract, right? It's a lot of guys who missed a wave. It just happens that way sometimes. It happens that way. Mm. And it's going to be a lot of people, right, who's going to catch the next wave. You know, well, there's a wave, you know, there's a, a wave all the time. Right. Uh, but I'm saying, but sometimes you miss it. I mean, what's the guy? Is it Bobby Bonita? Did you talk about what's his name? All the time. Bobby Bonita. Yeah. yeah you talking about him, how he his his agent did a great job taking care yeah. of him. Great job. Right. I mean, that doesn't seem fair. But what I tell you about fair. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Fair, fair doesn't exist unless you're judging picks. Right. It's an even exchange. All we try to do is get an even exchange, right? And then there's some things we're willing to fight for and some things we're not. But but at the end of the day, Sherm, I mean, listen, it's the agent's job and responsibility to work their tail off for their client. And that means you strike when the iron's hot. We didn't make this stuff up. This has always been going on. Sometimes the good old boy network don't allow you to get paid even when you should. We've seen that before as well, correct? So yes. you might not even get opportunities. You know, why is there a recycle of coaches that's going on that get fired and rehired in the same freaking year or the mm. next year, right? And other people Rich, don't get it. How about Rich, Richard Patino got fired and got high from Minnesota and was hired the next day from New Mexico? Well, look at the bloodline. I think his daddy know the same strategy. Same thing, yeah. He right. could well. He yeah. He sat out for a, a, you know a couple of months before Iona hired him, but hey, he always wound up on his feet. I I, I guarantee you, uh, his sitting out don't look like us sitting out, sure. Yeah, that's also true. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know. Yeah. Uh, so them dollars spend a different way, right? Mm -hmm. And then and yep. then we look at your alma mater, not to be punishing you with it, but you can blatantly break the rules. Hear it on uh, on audio, 
and you still keep your job for four years. Hmm. Let me do well, let me do that at Westcliff. Yeah, but there's there's probably some stuff we don't know about that. I'm um, I'm sure it's some things that gave him leverage to do yes, those that's things. That's what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah, yeah. But this is that same leverage I'm talking about, sir. It's that same leverage. Okay, it's that same leverage. So the game has it does not change. I don't understand why common folks believe they're like millionaires or billionaires. Like we're on the same level. We're not. We can't go to the same hotels. We can't eat at the same restaurants. We're not created equally financially. They have way more resources and opportunities to continue to get rich than those who don't have money. And even old money look at new money different. It is what it is, Sherm. So either we can cry about it or we can get in the fight. Hmm. I decided I'm going to roll up my sleeves. You can get in the fight. Get in the fight. But other people, oh, why can't we do that? Because you don't have a billion dollars in the bank. When they don't like the way that the bank is treating them, Sherm, guess what they do, Sherm? They buy the bank, okay? Okay? They buy the bank. Oh, I don't like the rules. I'm going to buy it. Come, This happens all the time. We don't want to talk about this, Sherm, but it's the reality. You know, and some people are probably going to listen to this podcast and listen to me and say, man, you know, he's crazy. He's delusional. Okay. Okay. Like everybody was talking about Michael Jackson. We're broke. I take Michael Jackson's broke all day long before the <laughs> king of pop died. Yeah, he didn't. He yeah. he didn't know the same people I knew when I was broke. I'm here to mm-hmm. tell you that. I bet you he could have got a two for two from McDonald's. When you're broke, <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> okay. you, you, you see what I'm saying, sir? Uh, yeah, of course. All right. So you're saying that the playing field is uneven. It's has it not been like that? Has, has isn't this system set up that way for the rich to continue to get rich? Okay, you have an opportunity to bust your tail off and get it done. I'm not saying feel sorry for anybody. This ain't a pity party here, right? I'm just understanding in order for you to win the game, you got to understand the rules. That's all I'm saying. Mm. That's it. We got to understand the rules. So in order for us to dominate NAIA, right, at Westcliff, we got to know the rules we're playing. You know what the recruiting rules are, Sherm, don't you? Yes. Right. Do you not leverage those rules to get what you want in this game? Absolutely. Is it not legal? It is. How many people won't do it, though? How many people won't take advantage of that margin and, let, and make mm. that margin be their opportunity? Mm. We do this. We do that here at Westcliff, don't we? Well, I'm not going to be – you're not going to find me on recording talking about payments to players. No. That's not what we're talking about, right? I know. I know. But you got to – as you know, we always say you got to keep grinding. It's all about you got to just absolutely, you can't stop. but you know payments to players wasn't within the rules, right, Sherm? True. So I'm talking about things that are within the rules. The reason why people don't want to do them because it's dressed up in overhauls. It's work. Everything we want is on the other side of hard, Sherm. Flat out. And it's mm. do we have enough discipline, right? Uh, do we have enough uh, uh, ability to self reflect? And look inward 
and, and, and really assess ourselves of where we are and demand more out of ourselves. Some of us can do it personally, and you know, which is called personal accountability. And then others need other people to do it for them. Sure. Right. And and I got first round draft picks here at West Cliff. So I got a lot of of young uh, women and men. Uh, student athletes who come in here and understand what the grind look like and know what it is. And we got top-notch coaches that come in here and understand what it looks like. And it should produce great fruit, right? But guess what? To catch a wolf, you got to be a wolf, Sherm. Okay? So I'm here at Westcliff. I'm not concerned about the sheep. I'm here to awaken the, uh, the, the lions. I'm here to awaken the lions. That's what I'm here to do. I want to wake up the lions. The sheep always going to be sheep. Hmm. Okay. That's um, a tough statement, Sherm. That, not, yeah. Everybody know, not, been, everybody not built for this. Everybody not I, built for this, Sherm. I've been listening to all of these one-liners that you have, everything we want on the other side of hard. And, and uh, you know, the sheep are always going to be sheep. And uh, are we strong enough to overcome our excuses? Are we? Coach, I've always I you you're a coach. I've been a coach, right? That's the passage of this game, right? Sometimes we forget that dean of athletics and different things of that nature. And don't get me wrong, because you don't have to be an athlete to be able to coach, right? Um, we've seen that, you know, be, you know, people be successful. Mark Few is successful in basketball. You know, our guy over in the Patriots, he's successful, right? Um, I don't know why I'm blanking out on his name, but you know his name. Belichick. Oh, Belichick, right? He's yeah, successful, yeah. right? And he didn't he didn't be you know, he didn't, he wasn't an athlete, a student athlete or very, very successful. And I'm not for sure of Mark. Larry Fee, Brown but, was one of those guys. Right, right. Yeah. Right. But they study the game, they understand the game. But when you've been a coach, you don't never stop coaching, Sherm. Mm. We we just coach differently now. You know, my job is to game plan and do a scout to make sure that I allow you and all the other coaches to fulfill their commitment and their passion, you know, with a paved road, not a dirt road. Okay. But when we got here, it was no road. We had to, we had to freaking pull it out the mud, Sherm. Okay. We had to pull it out the mud. And then we had to grade the land. We had to, I mean, we did everything. I mean, Hardaway talks about this all the time, about how, how you know, you got to till that soil, right? You got to do it, you know, got to plant, you got to water, you got to do all those stuff. And then you got to be strong. plant, water, harvest. Right. And then you got to hit the repeat button, sure. Got to hit the repeat button. Mm. And not everybody can do that, right? And that's why I said, like, Westcliff not built for everybody from an athletic standpoint. Academically, we got high standards as well, right? So just like when I was in the Marine Corps, what's, what got me off my couch when I seen it was the few and the proud. When I saw that, the hairs on my neck stood up. I said, I'm one of those, sure. I might not be nothing else, but I'm one of the few and the proud. And I went and served this country, right? But that commercial got me up. I saw those dress blues. I saw that Marine Corps dude with the he was the officer, right? Um, with the sword, right? Looking good, locked and cocked. I said, hey, <laughs> that gotta be me, right? But what they don't tell you is once you sign on the dotted line, you don't just earn blood stripes when you come in. You got I mean, you don't just give they don't just give you the blood stripes when you come in. You gotta earn that. Mm. Right? And it sometimes it takes people four years to get it. 
It's on the other side of hard. It's on the other side of hard. I was able to get in there two years, meritoriously. About two and a half years, I pinned that on, right? And, and, and my last promotions while I was in the military was all meritoriously promoted. So I've been on this track for a long time, Sherm. I got to see those pictures. Do you have those pictures? I do. Okay, because I've only ever seen you this way. Yep. (laughs) I've only ever ever seen you for the last two, two and a half years. I'd like to see what it would look like before that. Oh, man, I'll make sure I send. I'll I'll post it after this. I'll make sure I post it on. Well, I'm not on social media right now. I disconnected for social media. Okay. But I put it on the WhatsApp. Okay. I was going to say, you know where to find me. Yep. Okay. So, you know, we talked about the free market society today in sports. Um, and I, and you know, it kind of ebbs and flows, but the interesting thing is, you know, the economy ebbs and flows right now it's going North things are, you know, the, the real estate market's going crazy here in California. Economy's picking up. The stock market is, is, is also jacked up sports going the same direction. So this pandemic has not really affected. I mean, it did for a bit, obviously, because of the gate, you know, you have five or 10,000 people at, a, at a, an arena that holds 60,000. So, yeah, that way. But the athletes themselves do, and, and the way society is going does not seem to be affected by the pandemic economically. We, uh, we're giving away huge contracts and renegotiating. Yeah, that's true. The risk you know, you is richer, sure. You I mentioned mean, Dak Prescott. He got a four-year, $160 million contract. And, you know, that's the uh, hey, the Jerry Jones and his and Stephen, his son, yep. that's your nepo- there's your nepotism. Absolutely. Held this- out as long as he could. Dak got paid. But, you know, so did the other guys on, on, on Dallas. Ezekiel Elliott got his big contract. Right. And uh, Amari Cooper got his big contact, contract. We got uh, student athletes to do the same thing to you, Sherm. They hold out. They hold out. They don't sign an LOI, right? They hold true. out. They wait. They wait. They wait. And then we got to negotiate. I'm on the other side of this, Sherm. So if we're going to equate what I've been talking about the whole time, which is probably sound like to everybody is pro, pro athlete, right? Which is true, right? Yeah. But, yeah I'm, exactly. but I'm on the other side with the other guys, Sherm. You know what I'm saying? I'm the guy that's trying to give you less money, okay, in the scholarship. Cause I'm 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 writing the ship on the other side, right? To keep right. us productive as an athletic department. But don't that doesn't mean I don't understand both sides of the business. That's why I'm not easily offended. This is what we do. This is sports. This is it. This mm. is this is why we play the game also, right? It's competitive in the field of play, but also in the boardroom. In the office, right? We gotta do our due diligence and know what we did, what we invested in. So it goes both ways, Sherm. It goes both ways. But let's talk about this pandemic. We have um, made more millionaires in this pandemic than we did the last time. We, you know, in, in great years. So it's a lot of people who have became millionaires during this pandemic. And people are like, oh man, they're getting over on people. No. They understand what Bezos said. I don't keep, he not paying me no money. I wish he would uh, bless Westcliff with some cash and bless me with some cash because he got enough to do it, Sherm. I'm sure his compound interest is enough to take care of my whole family <laughs> for like 10 generations, right? Let me let me call him after this. I'll drop him a bell and see if he'll answer. <laughs> Please do. Please okay. call him. And, and, and right. while you're there, call Elon Musk as well because I wouldn't yeah, mind okay. having a new Tesla. But hey, here's the deal. At the end of the day, they're looking at a margin and they and they're looking at it as an opportunity. 
right? Some people were just happy, you know, to get government assistance and get the PPP loans and, and, and was okay. Some of us are reinvesting that, right? And getting out there grinding and saying, hey, we're going to conquer the world. There had been a lot of athletic departments, unfortunately, that did not make it, right? They didn't make it for whatever rhyme or reason. We're in business here at Westcliff. We thrive through this pandemic. That means that academic leadership from our fearless leader, you know, Dr. Anthony Lee, to all the way to the janitor, everybody's a hard charger here. So you can come here and get a great athletic experience and great education. So we're here to fill any gaps, Sherm. That's what we're about here. So right. we, we just don't want to be uh, in the game. Because we don't believe, and I don't believe, that everybody should be getting a participation trophy. We want to go out and earn it. We're driven, overgiven a culture. So we do create our own sunshine. So like minds stick together. So if you want to be a hard charger and you're out here and you're listening to this, or you're a mom or dad or, or, or a brother or sister and say, hey, I want my um, uh, family member to be challenged uh, academically and athletically, then you come on over to West Cliff. Hey, as they say, Sherm, the young folks, pull up on me. Pull up on me. Pull up on me. Come pull up on me. Okay? All right. Pull up All on right. us, Sherm. Pull up on us, and we're going to take care of you because that's what we do. Sherm, is that not what we do? You know what we do? What we, we do, Sherm. We find great athletes and coaches with superior character who can establish an exceptional culture while making a tremendous impact in the community by being fully committed to excellence, which will translate to championships. That's what we do. Absolutely. Pull up on me. That's our five C's. Let's go. That's going to be our podcast for today. Sean, as always, thank you very much for joining me. Had a great one today, and it's a lot of fun. We'll see you on the other side. Yay, yay. And as always, I would like to thank my guest host, our Dean of Athletics, Sean Harris. Yay, yay. And the gentleman who makes us sound good each and every time we do podcasts, that is Brandon Peterson, our sound engineer. Beep, 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 beep. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you download your podcast, and please leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get the word out about Westcliff Athletics, and we thank you for your support. And keep an eye out for the next podcast.